0: Hi, it's a different introduction to this episode of Climate Scientists. I'm Ella Gilbert, and here my co-host Danny Jones and I have informal conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. This is our space to talk to people who get up and do the work of figuring out how our complex and awe-inspiring climate system functions. Today, I'm really pleased to say that we're joined by Penny Holiday, Penny Holliday is Head of Marine Physics and Ocean Climate at the National Oceanography Centre. She joins us to discuss her research in physical oceanography, short-term versus long-term research contracts, and leadership in science. Penny was kind enough to join us from her holiday in Wales for this chat, so thanks again for that, Penny. Just a heads up that in this conversation, we talk about the Axis project, which is an acronym for the North Atlantic Climate System Integrated Study, a six-year project involving UK oceanography, atmospheric science, and atmospheric chemistry. You can follow Penny on Twitter, at NP underscore Holiday, and Holiday is spelt with two L's. So let's go ahead and get into this conversation with Penny Holiday.
1: How are you, Penny?
2: I'm not too bad, thanks. Yeah, I'm on holiday this week, so I'm feeling totally relaxed and I've not been thinking about work at all.
1: (laughs) Amazing. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.
2: Yeah, (laughs) during a holiday. Yeah, well, it's possible that I agreed to this date before I realised I'd be on holiday. You know how it is. I probably failed to put Easter into my diary before. (laughs) Classic problem that (laughs) I agreed. Forget to
0: put bank holidays in.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Is that all right? Are you happy to, to chat to with yeah. us today? Is that, yeah, yeah, that's
2: fine. Let's go for it. Otherwise, it could be another several months before we have time. So
1: Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here, really. I've been hoping to talk to you for a while, so it's really nice to have you uh, here on on the podcast. Where are you on holiday, if you don't mind me asking?
2: I'm in North Pembrokeshire, in oh, West Wales.
1: Lovely. Oh, yeah.
2: okay. Sounds good. It's absolutely beautiful, and we've had just the loveliest weather as well. So. Yeah. Excellent. The days of like the hear.
1: Sunshine. Oh, that's great. I just came back from holiday myself. I managed to go up to Newcastle, in the Newcastle area, and uh, hang out with some some family friends. And it was really good. It was really wonderful. That part of the country is actually really nice. It's really hilly. There's lots of, you know, just really like sweeping, beautiful scenes you can see far, far off into the distance. And uh, yeah, I don't know. We really liked it
0: so train into
1: Newcastle as well. Oh, the train into Newcastle. Or... Yeah,
0: that mega bridge.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. Good. Good views. Loads and loads of bridges. I don't know. It's funny when you mention Newcastle. Sometimes people go, "Oh gosh, really?" But I don't know. We had a good time. We thought it was. It was... <laughs> Why,
0: Ivan? <won. laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. It's important to get away. I don't know. I. I think it was really good for my mental health to, to do that, to take a break and to just recharge, to recover. So, yeah, it's it's really, really critical. Well, one thing we could talk about is what you've been up to lately. So I wanted to start with like a compliment that I saw your talk. There was this Access Project final meeting a few weeks ago, and I saw your talk as part of that. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to be there in person, but I watched you from this little view right here on my little laptop screen <laughs> and i thought you gave a really nice presentation there and you also uh, a big overview of north atlantic circulation and uh, some of the big challenges there and there also you, you handled the discussion part of it really well too and i thought that that, that felt really good and productive and of course I, I wouldn't ask you to kind of you know rehash the whole thing <laughs> and <laughs> we can touch on parts of it right but you uh you talked about some of the big the, the emerging kind of observational understanding that we have of the North Atlantic and some of the big challenges there. And uh, but that that's actually come up a lot on this podcast. So, uh, but maybe to get more concrete with my kind of too long kind of introduction, what have you been working on kind of lately? What's something that, you know, before you went on the holiday, for example, what's been a focus of your your efforts, whether it is this North Atlantic stuff I was talking about or something else, you know, we can go and Wherever you like to go.
2: Yeah, I think uh, well, it's a good question and it's a nice intro. Thank you for listening to and saying kind words about my presentation. There's from it within my work. There's kind of three strands to my job at the moment. Actually, one of them is research, and there's a huge amount of really fantastic research going on in the North Atlantic, particularly at the moment. There's a massive kind of body of programs and people working on North Atlantic questions research questions and the reason there's so many people working on it is because it's hugely important to the climate system and so there's this real feeling of excitement and uh, anticipation of new results all the time, all of which is really contributing to improving our understanding of the physics of the North Atlantic Ocean and how it works and how it's changing and why that matters for the climate. So that's all really exciting. That's what I was talking about in my axis presentation. It's really what we've learned from observations of the ocean. So that that's one aspect of what I do. But I also have two other strands in my job that we can talk about today. One of them is about sort of international cooperation and program management and the way the international community can come together to solve some of these really big Earth system questions. And the other is... um, a topic which I haven't heard too many people talking about, actually, um, and and that's about the importance of leadership in science. So I have a yeah. leadership role within the National Oceanography Centre where I work, and I think a lot about what leadership means and yes. uh, what we can all do at all different stages of our career. Um, so I'd be I'd love to talk about some of those issues at some point.
1: Absolutely, and actually, I had leadership on my little list of things here. Um, you know I've kind of been trying to delve into that area myself I'm sort of supposed to be right now that's one of the things I'm kind of supposed to be (laughs) trying to figure out how to be so I'd really love to hear your thoughts on that I'm I'm particularly excited about that yeah so honestly if I had my pick I would kind of start there um does that sound all right we can do that
2: if you like yes definitely because that's really
1: what I, I wanted to engage with you on was like what leadership looks like I love that you mentioned that it doesn't have to be confined to one you know, career type or one kind of place in one's career, you know, it can be happen in all different career stages. So maybe what does it look like to you? What do you, what's, what are some of the things that kind of, embody le- leadership and good leadership for you?
2: I think it's a really great question actually and it's really something for everybody to think about because I think leadership um, is something that we all need to do in our careers as scientists. Every sort of promotion stage of like from once you've got your PhD or your research job, every stage of promotion depends on you exhibiting some form of leadership and so knowing what that means for you at your career stage is really important and it might be as a, as a postdoc, it might be gathering together a community of people to address a particular topic. It might be if you're an ocean, observational oceanographer, it might be leading a cruise or it might be pulling together a proposal, leading a group of people, writing a proposal or a review project or, you know, it can be a whole load of different things, actually um and then as you as you sort of advance through your career the scale of your leadership leadership activities and possibly the kind of progression from local to national to international leadership all of these things expand the more senior you become through through the kind of career as a scientist. And so I actually I think it's a it's really important for everybody to be thinking about what leadership means to them, what leadership skills can they be developing in order to be able to demonstrate that to progress through their careers and to take different directions in in their careers as well. You don't there are lots of different forms of leadership. Um, one of the things that I'm also passionate about, of course, is uh, improving the diversity of uh, within science. And uh, I do think that quite a lot of forms of leadership, uh, the sort of traditional understanding of what leadership means, has been very kind of male-focused. There's lots of lead styles of leaderships and kind of leaderships that are more associated with the kind of things that women do particularly it hasn't been recognised as leadership. So I think we're improving the way we understand what leadership is and recognizing people for the contribution that they make and, and getting them promoted um, in that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love all of that. Uh, there was something that I saw this morning. I'll keep it anonymous, so just in case they didn't want, don't want to be you know quoted on this. But they were reflecting on just that point you made, how often things that are considered soft skills, so-called soft skills, that's what people call them for one reason or, or another, uh, I don't really like that term to be honest, but that is what people I'm call lying. them. No, it's just what people call. It. we need a different term. Th- they were saying, well things like self-awareness or being able to build community or being able to like listen to a community and identify problems within that set of people, whether it's kind of research problems or other kind of interpersonal problems or just communication problems, being able to recognize those things, those are, those are really important skill sets and we often kind of, list those as secondary of, or saying, oh, well, that, those aren't really important. When in fact, those can be some of the most important things, like helping a set of people feel safe enough to be creative and uh, kind of vulnerable with each other. Uh, if you're thinking about like making a team or making a community, you know, if you can create a nice safe space where everyone feels like they can be honest and they can be themselves, they can throw out ideas, they can give uh, you know, honest feedback, then you can make some really amazing things happen in those those spaces that just aren't going to happen uh, in a space that's more dominated by kind of shouting and you know these sort of dis- displays of just ah I'm more powerful than you. <laughs> like that that's a very, very different, not creative environment. I'm being a little bit vague and a little bit general, but I'm wondering could you speak to some of that? Does that resonate with what you were saying? These kind of these these kind of skills are so they're normally put down, but they're so important. They're, they're, they're like central.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think possibly the world of science is a little bit behind the world of business in that respect. I think some of the views of what being a manager or a leader means is a little bit old fashioned, really. There's masses of books written about leadership styles um, and actually how how empowering people and enabling them to get on and do their jobs mm-hmm. uh, and be creative and be successful is really important. I often hear people talk about some, this thing called science leadership and I've never really known what people mean by that as if it's somehow different from any other kind of leadership in the world. And I think quite often what people mean are the, the people, the hero scientists who write mm-hmm. the big proposals or write the big controversial and impactful science papers. And there's there's possibly room for that. I guess there must be because there's still quite a lot of it about. But I do think that a change in the way we view leadership to be a bit more community building and a bit more supportive has an enormous benefits. That's
0: really interesting because that's something we were talking about with, with Chris Jackson when we had him on the podcast, this, this older model of having the hero model of, of science versus the shift or hopefully a shift towards a more collaborative understanding of what science is because ultimately you are standing on the shoulders of giants and that's the whole point of science, right? You're building incrementally on the work of, of others and and there's no reason that leadership shouldn't reflect that because it's not like you're always going to have one person necessarily driving everything forward in a really traditional sense. Is there a particular kind of leadership that you think is underrated or under? represented perhaps that you think
2: could come to the fore more? I think possibly just the things that I've said. I think that the the leadership is there. It's the recognition and the valuing of it, which is missing for some people. So this is something I've seen in my own organisation. In the past, I think that not everybody has recognised these kinds of activities that we're talking about as leadership or strategic leadership. And as a consequence of that, people who have uh, been Working in that way or doing that kind of activity haven't been recognised as leaders, and so if you, so, you might have a if we're talking about improving the diversity in our workforce, for example, and you think well, you look at your promotion system and your criteria for promotion, you think well, it all looks fine. I don't understand why we're not promoting women, say. Um, and actually, what I found is that the problem is that not everybody understands what the criteria mean. So I can think of one example from a few years ago, um, a person, a woman came to me and said, oh, I can't seem to get promoted. I've written my case. Everybody says I'm not ready for it. I don't know. My managers say, well, there's nothing they can do. But together we sat down and we looked at what she'd written. And by getting her to talk through what activity she'd been doing and what the impact was, she was able to Actually, rethink her own perspective of what her actions were and her the leadership skills that she was already using, um, and rewrite them in a way that was understandable to the promotion panel. And she did get promoted. So I think that there were there were there were problems around her understanding and also her line manager's understanding of what the promotion required. And that meant that the the process itself wasn't really at fault. It was the kind of people's interpretation of it or their mm. understanding and the culture around it. And so that's the thing that I think it's important that we work on, getting a broader understanding. So we're all, the three of us here, we're all agreeing with it, with ourselves <laughs> <laughs> about what we mean and what our ideal is in terms of leadership. But not everybody gets it. And uh, I think there's work to be done in in really convincing people, changing the culture, really convincing people that this is a, a useful way to go. And I think that that is happening in my organisation and you can see the benefit of it.
1: Uh, so it was, in that case, it was a communication issue. But like you said, there's also that kind of cultural issue of how are, how do we talk about some of these concepts at all? Yeah, the, the, I found the tweet that I was talking about where this person, I won't quote them exactly, but they the, the original tweet was... Uh, that uh, women spend 200 hours a year on tasks which won't help them advance their careers and serve to further skew workplace imbalances. And the the person commenting on it was kind of saying that, yeah, there's kind of a systemic cognitive dissonance that we can know that a task or a function is important to organizational health, but those things are discounted entirely in the whole system of uh, recognition and reward, which sounds like exactly what we were talking about. So yeah if those things are totally discarded then that's how you end up with uh certain people kind of climbing the ladder and sitting at the top meanwhile there are people who are doing tons of unrecognized work to improve the health and kind of diversity and inclusivity of a of a workplace that just aren't being recognized so yeah this, this is great stuff i'm really i'm really liking all this <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've I, do you have any specific uh, kind of resources that you've been using to think about leadership, or has it been more about kind of personal experiences and talking talking to people and reflecting on it? Are there any kind of books and things that you've found useful? Or
2: yeah, well, so naturally, because I'm a scientist, I like to do a lot of reading. So mm. I have read a lot of books about leadership. But actually, I was enrolled in a Grown Future Leaders course uh, a few years ago, which I found really helpful, um, which was. Consisted of people from across NERC research centres uh, coming together and learning about leadership and learning skills that were. Would help us be leaders. So that was really great. But as part of that, I read a book, which was about the kind of the Shackleton model of leadership, actually, mm-hmm. uh, which I, which really resonated with me. You know, so we, we like to read things, don't we, that sort of are related to our interests, our professional and personal interests. And I can't remember all the details of the book. But mm-hmm. the premise was that, you know, the importance of engaging everybody, having a kind of equality within the team, Having a having a sort of a team mission, but knowing that people were as important as the team mission, not kind of giving up on people or discarding people just because for the sake of the mission, you know, and that um, sort of leveling approach and inclusive approach. Was uh, really something that appealed to me. Um, so, but that you know, there's masses and masses of information out there. Uh, it's a bit like when you're a parent, actually, absolutely tons of parenting books, oh, yeah. loads of articles. Everybody's got an opinion, and you have to sort of you can read through it, but you have to have the the strength of mind to reject the stuff that that doesn't appeal to you or that doesn't quite make sense, and don't try to be guided yeah. by things that don't sit well with you, but just pick up the bits of knowledge that uh, that you um or guidance that appeal to you and resonate with you and i and so that's my been my approach to reading about management and leadership yeah.
1: you need your own intuition don't you and to kind of fuel that intuition you have to treat yourself well you have to do some self-care you have to go on holiday for example you know you have <laughs> exactly. to Yeah. So you can kind of stay emotionally healthy and keep your intuition healthy and keep your, keep your lens clear, so to speak, you know, polish your lens, keep it clear. So one of the thoughts that I had when you were talking about that, one thing I reacted to was um, how I I love that idea that it's so important to care for your people, to take care of them, look out for them, try to lower barriers for them. And one of the places I've been struggling as somebody who's trying to start to to lead and have groups and things, is uh, the precarity of short-term contracts. You know, I mean, this this was an issue for me not too long ago as an employee, and now it's an issue for me as somebody who's who wants to uh, hire and retain people. That it's so hard to do. It's so hard to like make sure that you have enough funding coming in at just the right time uh, to keep people around. And it seems really um, not healthy to kind of just keep people on these, you know, precarious short term, you know, one contract after another. I mean, I understand that there's no guarantees for what the future is going to look like, you know, five, 10 years from now. But at some point, you have to make a commitment to people, you know, as an organization and say, well, we, we believe in, in you and the work you do. I know that's a huge issue. We're not going to unpack it and, you know, solve it here. But uh, I've personally found that to be. One of the really challenging things, because I do want to look out for my my people, but just I know how hard it's going to be to you know keep those contracts coming 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 in to keep the funding coming in you know, where it needs to. Do you uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Is that that must be something that you're confronting as well?
2: Yes, it is. Membership. Yeah, and so it is. It clearly is a problem. So it can be beneficial for people to work for a short number of years in one place and then move to another. But meant for many people, it's a real struggle. Especially if you've got family uprooting your lives, the insecurity of it, the mm-hmm. the kind of financial strain that it can cause is a problem. I think that in the research centres that uh, that we have in here in the UK, we're actually much better placed to provide people with open-ended contracts so so that doesn't mean to say that everybody stays you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know uh, um it's good to make the place you know so good to work and develop people's careers and develop their skills so you know that's in a way that you want them to stay but actually they might decide to move on and move to another center if they if that's where uh, their choices take them but i do think that we are quite well placed in the research centers to offer open-ended contracts and really you know keep people in the organization and keep developing their careers and their skills so that's it's a it's the sort of a philosophy that we have although the realities of short-term funding means that initially a post you know might come up just associated with a grant and yeah, that may yeah. really have a three or a five-year contract um yeah but the aim uh, is to keep – is to make the case for – to opening the contracts are all about have, keeping the skills in the organization. And we have – in our research centers, we have this need, long-term strategic need to retain these skills. Um, and mm. so, we can offer people open-ended contracts. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's, that's good to hear. I'm glad for that. And I'm glad to hear that at some point it's just, it's a choice that a, an organization can, can make say, we're going to make a commitment to this person or that person. Cause yeah. Cause otherwise you sort of just feel like, you, um, you know, to make a, slightly weird analogy it's like you're you're constantly being proposed to and never uh, married like there's never (laughs) the first you know the commitment's not not there
2: it's true Um, that i would i would just say that it's not so much the commitment to the person because it because that's fine if you're the person with the open-ended contract but if you're the person whose contract comes to an end it's important to know that it's not about you as a person mm, it's about the the funding or about this all about the skill set so it isn't it really isn't as personal as a mm. marriage proposal. <laughs> um, it, I think it's important that we detach the that from the individual because it's that's not what it's about. It's about the organization's strategic needs. Um, and so it isn't a personal failing yeah. if, you, if your fixed term contract comes to an end.
1: That's very true. And I have to admit, when I was saying that, I was still sort of imagining myself in that position of having the fixed term appointments and sort of feeling that stress and feeling the sort of strain of like, well, what else do I have to do? Like a, you know, to to feel like maybe you have ticked all the boxes, but still, you know, not to, not to be allowed to cross that threshold. But yeah, you're you're certainly right. I I agree with everything you said just there. So I just wanted to add that little bit about where my mind was when I made that comment. Um, So this is kind of, I wanted to go in a slightly different direction with this, with the leadership stuff. I I think this is a question that maybe all three of us could dig into a bit. Uh, What's the relationship between uh, leadership and kind of making noise? You know, there's, I mean, there's, let's just say to overgeneralize, there's one style of leadership where you just sort of take the decisions that are handed to you and you kind of propagate them down. Uh, And there's another style of leadership where you make noise, (laughs) where you protest if things if things don't look right to you, where you you know engage with problems that you see in organizational structures or in the way that we're doing things, uh, what's the relationship between those two things for for you and for Ella too? Feel free to chime in for yourself too, uh, Ella. I,
2: I think that you, um, uh, I think that you can follow your own path. Actually, you can choose how to approach these problems. I know that for me, I spent many years feeling um uncomfortable with some of the things that were said to and about women you know to me and and to me about about me and about other people mm-hmm. um and My approach was not to say anything, actually. You know, I didn't want to – I didn't feel comfortable enough to put my head above the parapet and be shot at. Um, I Actually, I wrote down – my way of coping was to write things down. I would write – I kept a record of all the um, unpleasant and inappropriate things that people had said to me over the years (laughs) Um, as a a way of managing my own emotions. Um, But gradually, um, I realised – that but that by saying nothing nothing changes if you say nothing nothing changes and so i began to um sort of to find the courage really to speak up when somebody says something inappropriate not always at, at that moment but later on or i would say to uh, people in positions to make change these are the kinds of things that have been said or done you know what are you going to do to you know change that mm-hmm. I also spent quite a lot of time you know even as a scientist sort of sitting on the in the background not, not not really having the courage to speak up about my scientific opinions or knowledge as well. So really I did spend a long time being quiet because I didn't really have the confidence or the courage to say anything. But at, but at some point you start to think well yes it, things need to change and you know what can I do to make a change? And I'm not really a shouty, loud person. Um, mm-hmm. And so I started approaching things in my own way, changing my areas of influence, essentially. The people that I work with, pointing out to people. Quite often, if you draw attention to people's words that they've said, and you know, without meaning to be hurtful, um, they think, oh, wow, yes, I didn't mean that. It was a joke or I wasn't thinking. Mm-hmm. And then maybe they'll never do it again. You know, so you can, I sort of started... Rather gradually, and just trying to have quite a visual way of thinking. So I'm mean, I'm picturing you know me in the middle, and I'm spreading a kind of a circle of influence <laughs> of improving mm-hmm. things, just mm-hmm. making small changes, and reminding people to think about the you know who's in their list of speakers or who's on their panel. You you can go you can go a long way um, with doing those quiet those quiet things <laughs> rather than shouting.
1: I like that. Yeah, well said. Ella, did you have anything to add to that or any
0: uh, I was, questions uh, along those lines? When, you're, when you originally introduced it, having more kind of thoughts about, uh, as climate scientists, uh, the role of acting as leaders, not necessarily just within an organisation, but within society in a way. Yeah. Um, and this idea that lots of climate scientists are increasingly... Starting to make noise um, mm-hmm. in the face of the overwhelming <laughs> body of evidence that is presented with us every single day in our in our day jobs about how our environment is changing and how the problem is increasingly urgent and, and in the face of seemingly not enough action. Mm-hmm. So I guess that, that was where my mind went with it, in mm-hmm. in the sense that. I feel like as scientists we all have a a moral and professional duty to start making noise about that Um, and of course it's not just about just in quotes air quotes uh climate change it's also about equity it's about addressing those historical imbalances in power um, that will a enable us to actually tackle the crisis effectively um and b solve a whole bunch of other problems along the way which will ultimately produce a much hopefully a much nicer world to live in for everybody
2: so so just to add to that um i um I think that the key to success here is for people to play to their strengths. Mm. So not everybody can be, you know, the loud, the, the loud protester. Um, I think it's absolutely fantastic that there are people who are very good at communication. There are people who are very good at taking political action. There are some of us who political action is actually just going out and voting when you know we haven't perhaps voted before or haven't thought carefully about who to vote for. Mm. So I think there's a range of things that we can do. Um, And we don't all have to be doing all of these things. We can just play to our own strengths. One of the reasons I started thinking about leadership in my organization and taking on some of these management roles was because I'd sat back and I looked at how other people were doing it all wrong. (laughs) And I thought maybe I could have a go at doing it myself. Not that I think that everything I do is right and I'm sure I I don't get everything right. Of course, I am a human being. But I thought that this was a way that I could contribute to making the world a better place. And so I think we can all reflect on what we can do. And and that changes over time in different stages of your life. There are different things that you can do, different ways you can use your skills.
0: I wholeheartedly concur with that. I used to be one of the uh, placard waivers, <laughs> the shouty placard waivers a lot more. And now I feel my role is much more um, in the communication side of things and then contributing as a, a active scientist as well. And like you say, we need all of those different roles to be fulfilled mm-hmm. all at the same time. And which one of those roles you are able to be part of will change as you change yourself. And yeah, I think yeah. that's a really important point to note because so often we get you just have one idea of what kind of person is tackling the climate crisis or who is being an advocate for diversity or whatever the the thing is that you're doing but actually it can look at a whole variety of different ways and it almost comes back to this thing we're talking about with leadership some things aren't recognized in the same way um so it's yeah it's it's very crucial to, uh, to remind ourselves of that I think
1: yeah yeah I, I really like how, how how you two put that you know you brought you, we're now kind of broadening it goes back to this idea we started with of uh, many different kinds of leaders and that that kind of leadership can shift throughout your, your life, depending on, like you said, depending on your strengths and also just what you have available, like your, your bandwidth that you have, your yeah. emotional physical bandwidth, because, you know, we don't have infinite energy. We don't have infinite time. We have, you know, very finite resources along those lines sometimes. And so we, we can't be all things. we, have to contribute where where we can you know where we're able to uh yeah that's really really well said so do you mind maybe we could think about how do you bring that leadership uh Benny back to your kind of international cooperation and program management how does that show up in that aspect of your work the 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 second strand you mentioned
2: yeah it's actually where I started my career really I um I first started working at the Institute of Oceanographic Sciences, Deakin Laboratory, IOSDL, in Surrey in 1990 when I was 22, just a graduate. Um, And I was employed as a, I think I was called a staff scientist, but it was essentially I was helping to coordinate the World Ocean Circulation Experiment, WOS. So I was working in the International Project Office and our job there was to oversee the coordination of this giant oceanography experiment it was um it was an incredible thing actually the people who had the vision to achieve this program were really incredible the more than 30 countries you know just a huge fleet of ships were commissioned or upgraded to achieve this thing just in, an incredible achievement and my job was I was employed actually to work for the data information unit. So my job was to keep track of what people had promised to do. There was a kind of a, a <laughs> there was an implementation plan which listed all the many elements of WOS that were were going to needed to be achieved in the five year field program, and my job was to keep track of what people had said they would do and whether they'd done it or you know what went wrong and what went well and all the rest of it. So I had my database, <laughs> and um, just I spent a lot of time going to setting up and attending meetings where people from different countries and different centers talked about what they were going to do. And I absolutely loved this big picture that I got of ocean science. I knew nothing about oceanography before I started my job. My degree was in geology um, and I didn't want to work on an oil rig. So I kind of messed around for a couple of years until I found this job or it found me. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it was wonderful to see This incredible vision that people had to um, come together, all these countries, huge amounts of money with the sole purpose of getting what they called a snapshot of the ocean circulation over a five year period. Of course, what we've learned about variability means that there's no such thing as a snapshot, really, of the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, the seeing people coming together, kind of putting their egos aside and working closely to... For this common goal, not everybody was totally able to put their ego aside, but most people <laughs> were. And that, and that was really a fantastic thing. The big picture, you know, I got to travel to some really amazing places to see what people could achieve if they had the will was really instructive to me. You know, I was young. I was only 22 when I started. Um, I looked even younger. So it was I knew nothing about oceanography. So I'd, you know, show up at these meetings and try and get people to form a consensus of view on a topic that I didn't really know an awful lot about myself. Um, So I I quickly had to learn a few skills about negotiation and community building there, (laughs) Mm. Um, which was brilliant, actually. I really enjoyed that. It was a fantastic job that I did for about... Just over ten years, I think, doing that, and so and then I went away from it after a while um, because um, I had started a part-time PhD um, at some point. That's another story. But anyway, I, f- I finished my PhD just as the Waste Project was coming to an end, and I had a, a, my first child. So I went to work part-time, and I had to make a decision at that point as to whether I continued in this world of international collaboration and and multinational projects or whether to try and work on being a scientist for a while it wasn't clear to me that i could be a scientist Mm -hmm. i had my phd but that's just you know that's just the start isn't it really Um, entry ticket (laughs) (laughs) um Although actually where I worked, lots of the senior scientists didn't have PhDs. They'd been around for so long. uh, It wasn't that PhDs weren't invented, but they hadn't needed them to start in their jobs. But anyway, um, but, uh, you know, knowing that I was was going to be working part time for a few years, um, I just made the choice. I made a choice to have a go at being a scientist and to focus on writing papers. You know, couldn't do the traveling anymore. Couldn't go to the conferences or the meetings. Hmm. So I focused on writing papers, for yeah, i about 13 thirteen thirteen years I would work part time I think.
1: Okay, just, just kind of building that, building your portfolio, building your you know your expertise exactly. in particular areas. Yeah. Building
2: my credibility as a researcher, you know, the, not, the, the work that I was doing wasn't wasn't particularly glamorous. It's the sort of the good NERC uh, core funding we used to call it national capability, where you're doing long-term, large-scale mm-hmm. ocean science. Um, I was tasked with essentially essentially producing some research from time series, which had been sort of underworked over the years. they had been the time series had mm-hmm. been been generated, but the research out, outputs were a bit too low <laughs> to mm. to persuade anybody they needed to be continued so
1: do, do you mind if I ask kind of thinking back to that leadership stuff and and uh if you were advising or kind of managing somebody who was in a similar position what would really good management and leadership look like to to you uh thinking about that, those kind of roles being reversed you know how would you Go about that, uh, if that is a clear question. Does that make sense? <laughs> um,
2: I phrase it? Okay. I think, yeah, what I I think that what I try to say to people, and you can ask them later whether it comes across clearly or not, mm-hmm. um, is that there are different ways that you can do it, but the most important, or at least there are different kinds of activities that you can do, but the most important thing is to be able to recognize what you've done and what the impact is. So, I think it's incredibly beneficial for early career researchers to be part of working groups, international working groups that might be looking at the way to make new measurements or what you can do to measure boundary currents or, you know, how to calibrate deep ocean <laughs> measurements or, you know, whatever whatever it is. Um, or you know what do you need for an ocean observing system these kinds of things i think it's really important for ocean uh, early career researchers to get involved in those kinds of working groups and you can kind of go along and you can observe see how they work and gradually or as quickly as you like start to contribute and shape the Way that work is going, and then you have to be mindful of what it is you're doing. Reflect on what it is you're doing. What's working? What's not working? Where is the difference being made? And being able to recognise that yourself and articulate it when other people ask you, <laughs> and reflect on how you, you know, what what aspects of that you take to your next level of engagement um, is really important to people. So finding some international activity to be involved with beyond just research projects. I think it's a really good thing for people to do.
1: That gets you plugged into that community that you can then listen to and draw on and hopefully contribute to and kind of become a part of that, of that structure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think so it it takes a certain amount of courage to do this. So I've become interested recently in the idea of courage as opposed to confidence, (laughs) um, -hmm. because, when you join a, a committee like that, a working group like that, you're probably going to. Many people will feel quite intimidated by the other people in the group. You know, especially the ones who are confident at talking already. You think, "Gosh, they know so much more than me. They're much more articulate than me." All of these things can cross your mind. And a lot of people talk about the need for early career researchers to have the confidence to do things. Um, I've spent most of my career, I would say, not feeling very confident about what I'm doing, but So I prefer to think of it as a kind of a courage, really. So you might not have any guarantee of success. There's always the chance that you're going to say something stupid and fall flat on Mm -hmm. your face. (laughs) Um, but you've got to give it a go anyway. But years ago, when I was learning to windsurf, uh, there was the there was a, a magazine that I used to read where they talked about having a go for it attitude, which was really important when you were learning to windsurf because if you <laughs> went in half heartedly, you'd never be able to do it. You had to really give it a go, and I think the same thing applies here. You have to have the courage to have a go for it attitude, and then the rewards will come. There'll be setbacks. You know, you can't succeed without some failures along the way, but um, have the courage to keep going is my (laughs) advice.
0: I love that. That's reminded me a lot of uh, when I was learning to snowboard, the one and only time I've ever done it in Antarctica. The person who's teaching me is like, I don't think I've ever seen anyone fall flat on their face with a snowboard attached to their feet so many times and still get up. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) Context as well. I'm a boxer. and I was like, you know what? I'm used to getting hit in the face regularly. So maybe that's <laughs> part of it. <laughs> yeah. Falling flat on your face repeatedly, getting punched in the face by snow. It's just yeah. another type of uh, <laughs> yeah, a feeling of
2: the life. A feeling when you've got up and you're going and your body's in balance with the elements. That is just totally, you know, out of this world. And so. almost glorious system. two minutes, two seconds.
1: I was hoping you were going to chime in, Ella, because that's what I was thinking about when Penny was talking about that courage about, OK, get back in there. I know you just got punched in the face, but get back in there. <laughs> Do it again.
0: Yeah, it uh, requires some serious, serious courage getting in a boxing ring. Uh, hats off to anyone who does it, honestly. Win mm-hmm. or lose.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I guess, you know, you have to use your own internal barometer a bit to know uh, how long to stay in the ring versus when to take a break. And I guess that same can be said for our kind of general courage. You know, we can push ourselves, but we've got to have that internal barometer to let us know when is it okay to push versus when do I need to rest? That's that's not always an easy instinct to to train. I think uh, probably I pushed too hard when I was young. And I don't think I'm overcorrecting, but I always kind of—is there? There's a possibility of overcorrecting and of becoming too much. Like, okay, now I'm gonna detach and uh, rest. Uh, I need some of that. But yeah, I think it's figuring out how uh, much, how how engaged to be, how active to be. And this gets back to what we were saying a minute ago, right? About how much noise to make when you're a leader. You need that internal barometer to know when to rest and when to push.
2: Yeah. So, and so you can think about, um, I think in psychology it's called consolidating as well. So you can, can push for a while and then actually you can, you can take a step back and it, it's not just I like to think of it as consolidating rather than resting, you know, so mm. it's still there in your mind. You're reflecting on what's happened, what went well, what didn't go well, and yeah. and just kind of giving yourself a break. And, and sometimes that is forced upon you for various reasons, like maybe you've got young children or whatever. You mm. know, my stepping back from the international program management thing was really a recognition that I needed to focus on, you know, my two young children and not... Uh, not wanting to and not being able to work long hours or do much Mm -hmm. travel. Um, Yeah, yeah. So, you know, having, I think the idea of having short or medium term, you know, maybe a year or anything between one and five year, a kind of a goal, set yourself an idea of what you want to um, focus on in that time so that throughout your career you're prioritising different activities and different skills development um, and it will change depending, depending on what, stage of your life or your career you're at or indeed if you want your career to go off in a whole new direction which <laughs> lots of people do
1: yeah yeah absolutely well said well we don't have a ton of time left because i know you know we wanted to try to finish around an hour roughly which is totally fine and i really like what we've talked about so far this is, has been a great episode i did want to give you a little bit more time to talk about science Cause, you know, you're a really good scientist. You've got a great overview of the whole field. You know, you're always making these really, really nice contributions. So I wanted to give you at least some time. Do you want to talk about some of the biggest challenges in North Atlantic circulation? Some of the problems you're interested in? Where you see things going? Um, yeah, feel free to engage with that in however you like. Just have some time to talk about science <laughs>
2: yeah okay. okay bring up my axis slides no i are not going to yeah. <laughs> yeah so I think that in all my science career I've been working on you know what makes the North Atlantic Ocean tick it started off with trying to understand the variability we saw in a small time series west of Scotland and it sort of progressed further and further afield into the large-scale ocean circulation how it's changing actually what its form is how it's changing and how it might change into the future. Um, And as I said earlier, the the motivation for all of this is all about climate, actually, because if we want to know know, how stormy it's going to be or what the sea level rise is going to be in a town like Southampton, city like Southampton, then we need the bigger picture that's provided by the ocean. Um, And so just trying to Observational oceanography is very much about, is often very much about going out and looking to see what the ocean looks like, (laughs) you know, what physical processes are actually in play there. So at the moment, I'm um, one of the principal investigators for the OSNAP program. OSNAP stands for Overturning in the Subpolar North Atlantic Program. And really, what we did was set out to understand how the overturning circulation works in the subpolar North Atlantic. So we, for years we've been seeing the variability of the MOC, the meridional overturning circulation, at, at in the subtropics where the signal is really nice and strong. But we wanted to understand what was actually happening in the subpolar North Atlantic. So the area between Canada, Greenland and, and Europe. And we uh, have known actually for my whole ocean oceanography career that the many ocean models and climate models don't represent the subpolar North Atlantic very well. It's a really tricky place to model. You know, I could put, I can remember Peter Saunders, and a, a very old name in oceanography, um, saying to me, "All the models can't get the overflows right. They never will." <laughs> um, that was sort of in the early 1990s, and uh, it's still a it's still a problem. Uh, Today, but this whole area is super important for our understanding of climate and how it's going to change. Um, So, an
1: overflow being um, like flow under an undersea ridge basically is, you know, one way to to think about it.
2: Yeah, sorry, to getting straight into jargon and forgetting (laughs) that we have a broader audience. Yeah, these are dense waters right at the bottom of the ocean. They flow over the ridge between the Nordic seas and the subpolar seas. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're really important for driving the large scale ocean circulation. Um, And so we set about, um, you know, the the program is to um, observe the form and function of the overturning circulation. And, you know, you always when you make a big. Observational program. You can always expect your understanding to be challenged. I mean, that's the what that's the reason why we do it. And sure enough, that is the case with OSNAP. You know, the region that we call the Labrador Sea between Greenland and Canada um, has, for many years, been thought to has been as extremely important area for setting the strength of the overturning circulation. And uh, one of the very first OSNAP uh, conclusions was: it's not really the Labrador Sea at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that may be the case in many of the models, or maybe we're not reading the models correctly but in any case let's have a look east of Greenland in the Erminger Sea in the Iceland basin and the Rockle Trough which is where my career started Uh, when I started uh, analyzing the time series there everybody said to me why are you going there it's the least important part part of the ocean to study they said Mm -hmm. which you can imagine how that felt as a PhD (sighs) student but anyway yeah Um, I I persisted and uh, and Mm -hmm you know it is one of the important pathways for warm water heading north and so we're learning just huge amounts really about the physics of the of the ocean there and that those observation based understandings eventually feed their way into the way we interpret model outputs or maybe um, improve models to better represent some of the processes that we've learned about from our observations. You know, it's really exciting to see so many new bits of information. I'm trying to think of a better way of describing our new results, really. Um, mm-hmm. fa- fantastic uh, ability to take observations say, actually, at this point in time, the ocean is behaving differently to how we expected it to, all the way from that to really the big picture things like where you can actually then go back and re-examine old data from the past 100 years or re-examine you know, what's happening in the, the models or the ocean reanalyses and see, well, actually, maybe it's not quite how we thought it would be. And that's happening. Um, and that's really advancing our understanding.
1: Yeah. I mean, just a very small example that comes to mind something that people might not know is that there's parts of the ocean circulation where we don't even have a clear observational understanding of the seasonal cycle. So for example, that was one of the things talked about at the Axis meeting, right? Was that, well, we have this O-snap line. It's just starting to get long enough where we can derive a, conf- a seasonal cycle from it. <laughs> you know, like that's something we didn't even know, you know yeah. a decade ago, or a few years ago.
2: Yeah, absolutely and it, you know it's one of the seasonal cycle is one of the biggest signals in the ocean but you know typically when you're thinking about climate actually you want to get rid of that seasonal cycle yeah. <laughs> you want to you know so it's really um i i recall uh when when i started doing my work on the rock or trough time series the ellet line it was called um there was very little winter data and i found it endlessly frustrating that i couldn't get a seasonal cycle despite having you know cruises four or six times a year over the course mm-hmm. of 20 years and so when i was given the opportunity to run a cruise into the Rockall Trough in February 2000. I thought that'd be fantastic. We'll get some winter data. We knew there was mixed this winter mix into 800 meters in the Rockall Trough, or even a thousand meters. I mean, it's really. It's not quite as deep as the Labrador Sea, but there's deep convection going on there. And anyway, we went out in the ship and we just got absolutely hammered by the weather and it became very clear to us all <laughs> why <laughs> there were very few infections before. So, you know, looking to the future, just as we, just we I realised that we're running out of time, we have the ability now to measure the ocean at all times of the year and in parts of the ocean that um, you can't get to with ships, you know, the kind of rise of autonomous vehicles um, is hugely exciting. I think for oceanography, we're going to be able to yeah. get uh, huge amounts of um, data, f- you know, of a kind that we haven't had before, which I think is wonderfully exciting.
1: Absolutely. And supplement that with satellites, you know, satellite observations yeah. that can measure things like sea surface temperature and can even give you ways to infer the kind of surface currents from the you know, sea surface height and things like that. Yes, yeah. it's, it's an, and it's exciting to think about that and to think about a way to synthesize all of those observations and to put them under a common framework. You know, maybe you're simulating the data somehow into a numerical model, making state estimate, or maybe a machine learning driven kind of thing. You know, there's lots to think about there as well in terms of how to synthesize all those observations. Yeah, great. That that is exciting. Is there anything else we want to talk about as we're kind of kind of wrapping up here? I think we we've covered a, a lot. I think it it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it and I really appreciate having both of you here. But I uh, just wanted to make sure is there anything else we want to do, talk about?
2: I can't think of I can't think of anything I didn't have a list of things that I wanted nah. to talk about I was gonna sit I was gonna wait and see what you asked me and <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: always a good way to 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 be as an interviewee I think <laughs> relaxed yeah yeah
1: well great thank you so much for your time and uh, I'm really glad that we got to talk to you today I hope you enjoy the rest of your holiday enjoy your weekend and uh, hope to see you around soon I'm sort of home a lot these days and kind of not traveling for work as much uh I mean, i'm in that kind of position at the moment so it might be virtually but yeah i hope to, hope to run into you at some point in the not too distant future yeah
2: yeah me too that'd be really great good. well thanks very well, so much for having me it's been uh it's been a really a very enjoyable talk and i'm really pleased to be here on this podcast thank you oh good i'm glad thanks penny thanks ella take care talk to you later bye
1: bye